Today's episode is brought to you by Doris, a premier distributor and manufacturer of wholesale arts and craft supplies with over 65 years of trusted business. From affordable bulk supplies to on-trend craft items, Doris has a broad selection of over 45,000 items across hundreds of product categories. Visit Doris.com to learn more. Thank you so much, Doris. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 163 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. So check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about building a business in rug hooking with my guest, Rose Perlman. Rose is an artist and teacher who focuses on textile design. Her workshops center on ways of making beautiful home objects with simple and expensive materials. As the daughter of two artists, her parents taught her to value a life filled with creating, tinkering, and playing. She lives in New York City with her family. Rose Perlman, welcome. Hi, Abby. Hi. It's so great to talk with you. I'm very excited to explore your career and how it's developed over time and what you're working on now. So um, I'd love to sort of trace back to your growing up. Um, you grew up in Vermont, and as we talked about, your parents were both artists. They were painters. So talk a little bit about your childhood and um, what that was like. Were your parents actually from New York City? Um, my father grew up in Westchester and my mother grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, but they came to New York uh, to study painting. Um, they went to undergrad at Pratt, Pratt in Brooklyn, not far from where I am now. Um, and that's where they met and fell in love and um, were in New York for a while before um, following an art teacher up to Vermont. Okay. And so they yeah. moved to Vermont, which is very beautiful and a little more secluded um, than New York, for sure. And um, and your dad ended up running like an artist in residency program of some kind? That's right. When I was uh, maybe four or five, he had an opportunity to direct, or I shouldn't say direct, I think he was operations director of a residency program called the Vermont Studio Center. Okay, cool. And it's, yeah, located in a tiny little town um, in northern Vermont. And so, and it was in its infancy when he was offered that position. So he, we all moved just an hour more north to this small town called Johnson. All right. And so did you yeah. spend the rest of your childhood there? That's right. Yes. And this, um, it was this community within this small town. So the... Vermont Studio Center is a residency program for fine artists, um, and then later it became for fine artists and writers, and people come from all over the world, usually spending about four weeks there, and uh, they get a studio, meals, and housing, and it's a community, but uh, they're there to just finish their work. Um, or just have that time in their studios. Oh, it sounds marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. It was, it, it's a magical place. And, and to grow up there and be surrounded by all that was pretty incredible. My, my meals were always in a dining hall with all the residents and the right. staff. So, um, and so did you go to like a public school near there? I did. I went to the local public school. Um, but I always uh, looked forward to every evening six o'clock, I always looked forward to dinner because I knew it was a different, it was a different world. And I, I loved it um, from the very beginning. Wow, that's such a neat childhood. And did you yeah. have um, a sibling? I did. I have a younger sister. And so she was part of that too. She, 
she didn't, um, maybe in high school, she kind of was more social with her high school friends and didn't spend as much time in that community. But I, <laughs> I was kind of always hanging around there. Got it. And okay. it was, yeah. And with my, my house was growing up there. It was like doors were open. It was really in the center of this uh, residency program. And so it was like always in people coming in and leaving. And um, it was very communal and very fun. Yeah. Wow. That's so neat. Okay. Um, And then you went off to college to study photography. Where did you go to school? NYU. Okay. So you went back to New York City um, to study photography. You didn't want to do painting like your parents. Yeah. I always kind of resisted painting. Um, Part of it when I was little, I think I, I could never render like I saw, um, like my parents could do, or even my sister could do. And I pushed away then, even though my parents are abstract painters, I just, uh, I think I was intimidated by painting. And so it was never the thing I gravitated towards. I love to have my hands in sculpture and clay and just tinkering with things. But, um, I drew a line about painting in the beginning, Um, but yeah. And so I was attracted to photography because I just thought it's so different than, um, painting it was it was really it wasn't something that the studio center catered to and so I really it was like not even an art it was something that's set off from painting Mm -hmm. um but I but it was the same kind of formal composition and um elements that I just really loved right so I yeah okay so when you got to NYU and started in photography um did you end up actually liking it? I mean, sometimes, right, you have an idea in your head. You're like, I'm going to do this when I get to college. Then you get there and you're like, uh, mm. I mean, so did, did you, was it what you wanted it to be? Good question. I I did enjoy it while I was there, but this was in the late 90s and there was a shift going on. And by the time I finished my degree in fine art photography, um, digital was really becoming a thing. And so my analog style of film photography, large format, it was quickly becoming outdated. It was becoming so expensive. You know, dark rooms were shutting down. And I never really was interested in digital. And especially since, um, you know, phones became a thing with photography was so easy to do. I just felt pushed out a bit and I didn't have enough um I don't know. I didn't have enough confidence in myself to continue or to pursue a career, especially in one that was so crowded and so hard to make a living. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I did street photography too. So again, like not a lot of jobs in that field. I wasn't a commercial photographer. I couldn't really do a studio photography. So all of that, it felt like it was kind of slipping through my hands and I realized there wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a future in it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a hard, that was a hard one. So, um, so yeah. what did you do after college? Did you get a job? Did what, what, what was the next step? Yeah. Well, the next step was funny enough. I, I always liked doing, uh, yoga and I found yoga in high school and in New York city, I was able to do it more intensely. So I actually, I got my certification, right after I graduated college and I became a yoga teacher. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, it was. And it really fed me for a while. Um, I really enjoyed it. And at the same time, um, I also started teaching in, in New York city public schools and in New York city museums. So that kind of tied in at this, at the same time. So teaching, teaching art, not yoga. Yes. Oh yeah. Sorry. Teaching art. Although once in a while I would teach a yoga class as well in, public schools, but mostly art. And it was more like itinerant, not like being an art teacher in like a particular New York City public school, but more like traveling around. That's exactly right. They're called teaching artists. And so given my schedule, I'd be schlepping up to the Bronx or going into deep Brooklyn or Queens. or um, So I had to travel all over um, with huge bags of art supplies. And I never really had the same class more than like twice or three times at one location. So I was always going to different locations and it was very, it was very open in terms of what I could teach. It was uh, a cultural arts program. So we, it was tied to like Asian art or African art or Latin America or Native American. And just based on when those confines, I could really 
um, come up with any kind of project or, um, or a topic to talk about within that culture. And is that because the New York City public schools at that time at least didn't have actual art teachers who were, you know, hired on, on the faculty or was this supplementing what they were doing? In most cases, um, there was a huge lack of arts, uh, visual arts and um, music and dance <laughs> in public schools. And the schools we primarily went into were those that were really lacking. Um, in some cases, though, it's supplemented, but they already have. But with budget cuts and, of course, the pressure on testing, um, the arts was, as you probably know, the first thing to go. So a lot of times this was the only really hands-on experience some of these students would have, you know, all semester, all year. Which wow. Is, yeah. And this is mostly elementary and middle school. Oh, gosh. So, you know, yeah, you know how important it is, especially at that age. Yeah. Gosh, my daughter, yeah. who's nine in third grade, art is her favorite subject. And they have it on Fridays, and she looks forward to it all week long. So, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you did that. And are you still doing that kind of work? <laughs> I am this month and I am next month. It's hard for me to say no to these. It's a fantastic job. I've, I've been doing it for 15 years teaching in this in the public schools and especially to go into these museums in the city and have access that way. Um, so I have a hard time saying no. So I do Moonlight as a teaching artist still. In okay. The city. And with the museums, yeah. is that different? What what? How does it work with museums? Yeah. So it's the, I teach through this program called Symphony Space. Um, it's a performing arts and cultural um, center, Upper West Side, around 96th Street in Broadway, and they have a beautiful, um, a beautiful venue theater where they host anything from dance to spoken word and music. Um, but they have this education program that sends teachers into public schools, um, and we kind of they made it so we can also go into. Uh, museums in the city without and so the students don't have to use their own the museum's docents we become the docents for the day um so with that we get to go to the met or the brooklyn museum or um the native american museum all all sorts so it's really fun to be able to just pop in and pop out wow so the students come kind of like on a field trip Exactly. Usually I meet them at the museums. My first visit is in the classroom. And sometimes I have a second visit doing um, usually a hands-on art art craft. And then the third visit is in a museum. So yeah, that's really cool. I can see why that would be hard to say no to. Exactly. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great gig. Yeah, super cool. Okay, so you started doing that teaching yoga. um, And, um, and then um, were you also sort of I mean, I know that eventually, um, you were working on um, some other kind of fibery um, projects. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how you sort of transitioned into doing that. Um, maybe I don't, I don't know whether kids came first or exactly what came first here, but, um, how did, how did you transition into working with fiber? Yeah, great question. So I always liked to have my hands in something. I always, um, loved the fiber crafts. I loved the repetition and knitting and weaving, um, and uh, what else did I try? I would sew a little bit. I always did these little projects on the side. And when I started teaching at Symphony Space um, as a teaching artist, that's when I really was able to see how the arts and the crafts and the functional objects were tied together um, in these like in his history with all these different cultures. And it was kind of a light bulb because I came from this really fine art background where art was not supposed to be touched or used um, in the home. And then I would see these gorgeous objects in uh, Native American that they would use for, you know, for for hunting and for fishing and their regalia and their um, weapons and their tools and everything was this art object. And so I was really interested in creating things and um, fiber just suited me both because you have access to all the colors and it just seemed like a very soothing and for the most part repetitive craft and so I would I would come up with like little projects um based on my little knowledge of fiber skills but a lot of it was also 
finding a way to teach students how to create with fiber, how to weave, how to maybe knit or to cord. Um, I would create these projects uh, that I could then bring into the schools and teach to the kids. And so I think that's how I kind of really start to explore um, Mm. fiber crafts. And I had to come up with because I would see over 120 students per day. And of course, I had to bring my supplies with me and switch classes with like three minutes in between. So I really had to streamline what I could share, 40 minute classes, what you could make. And, And there was no budget. So I had to like cut looms out of cardboard and, uh, you know, finger knit. And, um, there was all sorts of projects I came up with that really would make beautiful small objects and teach the kids like these techniques and these fundamentals. Um, so I think that's where it first came into play. Um, yeah. my love of fiber and, and my exploration of it. And just yeah. this like inventiveness that you can make things that are useful and beautiful with um, basically found materials or things that are ex- very inexpensive, things you can get at the hardware store, things you already have at home, things that you're upcycling from, um, you know, things you're cutting apart and reusing and that sort of thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's where, that's what I love. I love being able to search for something in the house and, and coming up with a project, you know, not having to buy these specialty supplies or, or have a, you know, special tools or machines or anything. So that's exactly right. Right. And so you wrote this book called Tied with String. Um, and it seems like it's a collection of this kind of project where you're, um, you know, making things mostly with fiber, with string that are useful and beautiful and easy to do. And you self-published it. So talk a little bit about this project of writing this book and, um, and what it, what it has in it. Well, Abby, I'm so impressed because <laughs> this gets, this is very buried in kind of what I do, but, um. I'm, I'm impressed you know about it and you found it. But yes, I did uh, self-publish this little craft book. And it was um, very much a compilation of all these projects I was teaching in the schools. Um, but also kind of like my open-ended combination of art and craft. And most of it had to do with string and uh, and just simple materials and repurposing. And instead of having all these ideas in my head, I started to document them, um, just the, all the photos in there are sadly just with my iPhone and um, just writing tutorials and instructions for them. And then I just compiled it into a, a self-published book. Um, and um, when I look back at it now, I think I'm, I'm a little embarrassed just because <laughs> I know what goes into a well-published and crafted book. But my friend put it nicely. She said, well, think of it as your zine. Let's stop calling it a book. And right. I said, okay. <laughs> it's your zine. I'm definitely- exactly. And it's a very nicely produced zine if you think about it that way. Oh, well, thank you. Um, right. Exactly. And so you, it's um, published on Blurb, I think, or something, something like that. That's exactly right. right. Blurb. Blurb. Um, yeah. You get pretty much total control on that kind of self-publishing site. And I was lucky enough to... Um, Pearl Soho picked it up and so they carry it in their store. And so I think that's why you could still find it. But yeah. That's so cool. Great. Yeah. Um, so so you did that. And so I guess you did have this inclination to to publish. Um you know, right from, from, from the beginning there, like you wanted, I mean, you're a teacher, so you wanted to share instructions, um, which is like a natural inclination there, but also to, to publish too. Yes, exactly right. I mean, making a book was always the big dream and, um, that style of book where you can, I'm, I'm not, proficient in any one technique I mean besides for the rug hooking I should say but the kind of like this compilation of every kind of thing I like to have my hand in thrown together in one that was always I was working or was dreaming of a book like that for so long and finally I just thought I'll just throw one together so Mm -hmm. okay I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor Doris Doris is a premier wholesaler in the arts and crafts industry with over 60 years of trusted business. 
with over 45,000 items across hundreds of product categories. They're your one-stop source for supplies for your craft hobby, business, or store. Whether you make items to sell at craft fairs and your Etsy shop, or you teach workshops or make craft kits to sell, find all the supplies and products you need for your handcrafted items. Since its beginning, Doris has prided itself on being focused on makers and independent business owners. Buying your supplies wholesale direct means more profit for you. Their top categories for makers include craft basics and tools, jewelry making supplies, wood and unfinished surfaces, floral, art supplies, paper crafts, and so much more. Let Therese be both your DIY source and your resource. Their website and blog feature trend reports, small business tools and articles, project ideas and tutorials, and more. To best serve small businesses, Jerise offers a low minimum order of just $75, and all orders ship at no additional cost with their Freight Included program. There's an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners that you should definitely check out. Visit Doris.com and use the promo code CIA15, that's CIA15, at checkout for 15% off your order. This offer is valid through February 29th, 2020. So check it out at Doris.com. Thank you so much, Doris. And now back to my conversation with Rose. And then you also um, invented or helped to invent this tool, the loom. Um, and I'd love to talk about that if, you, if you're open to talking about it, because um, I know that that business continues to exist. Um, uh, but not with your involvement. So could you talk about what happened there? Sort of what is the story behind that? Yeah, so um, I, I'm really impressed with your research. <laughs> A lot of these things are very varied. But I think um, so with this compilation of the book I put out, but I was also making craft kits for kids, um, very open-ended, like ways to weave with clothes pins and on a empty tape core, if you can kind of visualize that. And it kind of turns into, I don't know, a knitting fork. And so you could do cording or pom-poms on that. So I was experimenting with all these easy ways to create um, fiber creations um, with very simple tools. And I knew exactly what I wanted to make would be something like a lucette, which is a knitting fork. But I also wanted to have certain components that could have notches if you wanted to weave on it or if you want to pop palms for like becoming a big thing or if you want to create a pom-pom or a tassel um so just kind of in a very simple um tool and i uh made the first uh test one with clay which of course doesn't work very well um but uh well while I was I was selling these little craft kits and I had something a prototype like that and I met a partner who had a background in business and finance and she was everything I kind of would need to um, have a product out there because I have no I have no business in the the business and marketing and all that stuff and so it seemed like the perfect kind of joint venture to do together um uh, so we produced this wooden tool called the loom, um, but the partnership kind of disintegrated and fell apart. I kind of left all the business side to, to her and kind of just was the creative. But in doing so, I kind of lost touch with um, just the, you know, even um, just the, the copyright and all those things, the patent and uh, 
and I stepped away from it. So, so it went on without me, but, um, I, my name is on the patent as the inventor. I see. Okay. And, right. Yeah. A little complicated. Yeah. No, it is complicated. But at the same time, I think that it's realistic. Like, you know, it, that happens. And I think a lot of people do go into business um, in a partnership and it doesn't always work out. And sometimes that's, you know, that's the way life is sometimes, you know. So I think it's um, it's good to tell those stories because um, – because they're real. <laughs> like that's, yeah. yeah, those are the real stories of what our lives are like at times. So um, it's not always easy. And, um, and I also think that, you know, it's, it's easy to look at somebody and say, Oh, you're an overnight success. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> and if you actually hear all the steps that went into becoming an overnight success, you see, it's not, <laughs> it's not quite what you thought, you know, so there was exactly. a lot of steps be, before the overnight success. So that's, yeah. And because of it, I mean, because of inventing this tool and then losing it and trying to find something great came from, from that experience. And so I'm, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, Um, definitely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, um, so after tied with string, um, Mm -hmm. and you had that, um, book came out. And then um, how did you sort of turn to rug hooking in particular? Because I feel like now um, when people see your name and we're going to get to your most recent book, which um, is very exciting and just um, came out, but um, people really associate you with rug hooking, with your beautiful rug hooking. And so that's really became become your signature. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about when you made that shift and how you made that shift to, to being the, to this being your focus? Yeah, I, I, my, so I should start by saying that my mother, um, created rugs while I was growing up. So not only would she have a oil painting, um, that's her primary thing, but when she had children and she also had a business of selling art supplies. And so she really needed something to do some kind of art that wasn't, um, as time consuming as oil paint. So she looked into all these different kinds of weaving techniques and applique, but what she was really gravitated towards was uh, creating rugs um, with rug hooking. And she uses a crochet like hook in her pieces. And so I grew up with the, um, her pieces always in the living room. And while we watched TV or we were together as a family, she was always hooking rugs. Um, and these rugs are in my home and, um, in my parents' house and they're just part of it. And so I kind of took it for granted. It didn't really occur to me that I could make my own rugs, even though I was into different kinds of fiber arts. I kind of put that one aside. And um, when my son was born, uh, I couldn't really get my hands on other artistic mediums. I mean, by then I was painting because of course it came back. The, The rebellion from painting came back, but I was struggling with not being able to get the paints out and to start painting in the short period of time of his nap. And so I was looking to other creative outlets and that's when my mother sent me like a package of supplies needed to make rugs with the rug hooking. And, um, so I would make rugs on the side and it was like one of the many crafts that I kind of had my hand in, uh, but I started sharing what I was doing on Instagram, mm. of course. Yeah. And I think it was, it was after the loom and I was kind of in a lull. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I didn't know what to do with myself and I didn't know where to place my energy. And I was kind of over making kids kits, craft kits. Um, and I just, I made a challenge for myself where I was going to make something different every day for a year. Nice. Um, yeah. And I had no idea about the 100-day project or anything like that. It was very new to social – for me, I was very new to social media. Um, it was just a kind of a way of documenting what I make but also giving myself a challenge. And um, so I started making things, and that's where you see a lot of the tied with string projects and projects that I did with students and projects that I did with my son. But that's where my rugs started to make an appearance um, in, in that feed of the everyday project. So, um, and I, it's, it got, 
it, it was definitely my rugs that got more attention than maybe some of my other work. Mm, so yeah. it's just like a experimentation and sort of let's just sort of see what I want to do and, and then watching the reaction and the feedback loop that kind of fed it. That's interesting. And I think it was also that feedback loop was probably also fed by timing, right? Because Aruna from Buku was, or Boku, I'm probably saying that wrong, was also, um, rug hooking at that same time or doing punch needle, I guess is the other word for, for rug hooking. Um, at that same, maybe, maybe that was around the same time. I don't actually know if that was around the same time, but that's she, her social media following is so enormous that, um, it really sort of seemed to, to make the wind in the sails like go crazy. That's exactly right. I, I was doing rug hooking and I was talking to Amy Oxford who invented the Oxford punch needle. And all of a sudden it was that summer and Aruna, got her hands on a punch needle and she featured it in her feed and Amy's life, Amy Oxford's life changed forever. Right, right. Went upside down. Yeah. Yeah. And all, everyone associated with punch needle, it it just blew up for us. I mean, I had no following, you know, very, very minimal. Um, but then people were searching for punch needle and I would come up because it was in my Instagram feed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I owe a lot punch needle, Owes a, owes a lot, lot to, to what Aruna. Aruna did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think um, in that way, I mean, she's like sort of the perfect story. And I've had Aruna on the podcast if people want to go back and listen. But it's she's the perfect story of an influencer. Um, it's like the perfect storm. I mean, she was truly an influencer who changed the like um, trajectory of a particular craft, um, and like brought it out of hiding in some way or so brought it into the light. Um, and it's just like one person's decision to pursue this and show other people how cool it was. Um, and it changed so many other people's, um, lives. I mean, Amy Oxford being, being number one. And just talk a little bit about what Amy makes just for people who are like, what are you guys talking about? What is that? <laughs> she makes this um, particular tool that you said your mother used a crochet hook and Amy's tool is much better. So just say what it is and, and what it does. Yeah. So um, rug hooking under the umbrella of rug hooking, there's really two types of tools. One's called a punch needle where you punch into the surface, the, a cloth surface, and it creates loops on the back of the surface. And generally you would use yarn because there's um, an unlimited length um, to your fiber. Where rug hooking is a hook where you actually have to feed the fiber from the underside of the cloth up through the top, um, kind of like latch hooking where you have to twist and pull and release the loop. So the punch needle was invented as a quicker neat, a, a quicker way to do the traditional rug hooking with the hook. Now, before Amy invented her tool, there were plenty of punch needle tools available. And I actually used to use a one, one called the Craftsman Punch Tool, which still gets used today. Um, but uh, my hand used to hurt terribly from it. It's like plastic and metal and, uh, I could only do it for so long. I would get blisters. Um, and it would just hurt. And Amy had the same problem because she was a professional, um, punch needle artist or a rug hooker that she couldn't continue to make her rugs because her hand hurt so much, but she knew exactly what would be needed to create a very ergonomic and well-designed simplified tool. And so she had it made or, um, uh, it's all made in America. I think the parts come from like Pennsylvania and Maine. I think that's right. And, um, since then putting together this beautiful tool, she's never had a problem with her hands again. And it's just incredibly efficient. And once I found that tool, I never, I never went back and it changed the craft for me. Right. And for so many other people. And, um, and then you started creating punch needle kits to sell as part of your shop and then couldn't, keep um, you having supply chain problems because Amy couldn't keep her um, punch needle tool in stock because the faster she would make them, the faster they would sell out after Aruna's 
craze. So <laughs> she created. Yeah. And, um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about the actual um, yarn that's used for punch needle. It's this three ply kind of coarse yarn. Um, and about sort of the way that you shifted from having your mom dye it um, to, to where you ended up sourcing it and kind of why you made that shift. Yeah. So in the beginning, um, putting together kits, my mom was like, okay, I'm going to dye all your yarn. Which is amazing, <laughs> the, by the way, that she wanted to yes. help you. Like you've got the best mom. I know. And she invested in like huge cooking pots and burners and, and all of that. Like she really embraced it, even though uh, we were just like learning by fire. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, and each skein would come out a different color than even though we were trying to like make a consistent dye recipe and everything yeah we are but my mother and I are very similar in in the way we go about any kind of craft is like we're not very precise and so it's always like a little bit of this and a little bit of that so yes so my mother used to hand dye all my yarn for my kits and my classes um which she said she was happy to do and it but it was a huge undertaking so I was doing research for um, rug yarn and there was a few companies that I knew that supplied beautiful colors of rug yarn but then in my research I found this one company called Seal Harbor Rug Company um, based in Vermont not far from where Amy Oxford has her studio and they were um, hand dyeing all their rug yarn and their selection of colors just blew me away and then once I ordered some and got their product it was so different and so the quality was so incredible that I knew like I never had to touch a dye pot again um, it just, just an outstanding selection of colors and it's pre-boiled. And so they even say you can throw it in the, the washing machine. It's not going to pill up or break apart. Um, just an excellent, an excellent, uh, quality of yarn. That's great. And, um, and talk a little bit about the, um, the, the actual fabric and the frame that you should use when you are doing this craft. Yeah, there's a, um, a lot of misinformation, I should say, on the internet. Uh, to do this craft um, and enjoy this craft, I should say, the, the material, the backing cloth, to get that right and to get the frame right is very important. Um, the backing cloth needs to be uh, usually generally it's something called monk's cloth, and it's made for rug hooking. There's a certain type of weave to it, a certain amount of... Um, like holes per inch, and it's very specific to this craft. And there's also rug hooking linen, which I sometimes use in my pieces. But um, anything that you go into, like a craft store, and you think it looks similar to this cloth, it's usually not the right thing. And while it might work for some things, it's it's going to be very frustrating. It can s- split apart or break apart, or you mm. can't remove fiber and then repunch in that, that doesn't necessarily work. And so um, you have to really buy backing cloth made for rug hooking or punch needle. And then in terms of the frame, um, because the stabbing motion of the punch needle, um, there's so much tension there, you have to really secure your backing cloth tightly. And Amy Oxford says you should be tight like a drum. So you want it not to bounce at all. And on the internet, you see people put it into like a traditional embroidery hoop and Mm -hmm. then it's bouncing or it's not taut enough. So if you get the right frame and if you have the right backing cloth, this is such an easy and enjoyable craft. Um, I'm always trying to find options to buying expensive tools and supplies. And so I did a lot of research with like, well, is there anything out there in terms of backing cloth that could work for this craft or is there anything out there besides these very expensive rug hooking frames that could work for this craft and um i've always stretched my own frames which um, for a beginner might seem like a, a big hurdle to overcome but it's really just buying stretcher bars from an art supply shop and you can buy them in any size you like and they slot in the corners so you buy four stretcher bars to make a frame and then you need a staple gun and you just stretch the material around the back and you secure with a the staple gun and it's really quite simple and then you can kind of control the size of your frame um so that's generally what i use but there are these uh 
what's called gripper strip frames, and they have these sharp little needles along um, the outside of a wooden frame. Um, they come in strips, I should say, and then you attach the strips to a frame, or sometimes you can buy it all together. It's very expensive for very small ones. It could be over $100, and oh, wow. the price goes up. Yeah, so... Um, but with that, the beauty of those frames is that to lay your cloth on just just means moving around and pulling it taut on every side. So easy on, easy off. And it's wonderful. And you could get it super tight, mm-hmm. um, the fabric. So they're, they're in a great investment, especially if you see yourself making small cushions of a certain size and you just want to make a lot of them. Um, but because I vary my projects so much, I do large floor rugs and I do small accessories that I'm always kind of changing out the size of my frame. So the DIY version would be make your own, um, with stretcher bars and and professionals, I should say that make huge rugs. They use carpet tack, which is a, a supply you could find in a hardware store. Uh, they, but the needles or the, the, um, the sharp edges on those are so extremely sharp that you then have to cover those sharp edges with felt and then staple the felt down. So it's an extra big step. And um, I don't like to keep those in my house because it's because they are so sharp. Right. Yes, I understood. Um, And Amy Oxford, by the way, she has some YouTube videos, um, right, for people who would like to to learn more. Um, And then also, you draw, you do a lot of abstract designs, um, and you're drawing on the fabric once it's stretched with either a Sharpie or like a um, disappearing fabric marker. Um, so you're kind of sketching out the shapes um, and then outlining them in wool. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I should also mention that there's hoops before I leave um before I go on to the next, but there are these wonderful hoops. They're not embroidery hoops in terms of frames. They're called um, no slip hoops and they're made specifically for rug hooking. So I just thought, yeah, Yeah. to get those in. So it's a different, it looks like an embroidery hoop and people mistakenly go out and buy embroidery hoops, but a traditional wooden frame would just snap. And these are made out of plastic and they have an inner groove. So they keep the fabric on, um, so yeah, those are like the big options in terms of frames. But cool. in terms of my my designs, they're they're really outside the box. I am an abstract artist, and so um, I tend to kind of do these larger shapes and fill them in with fiber, like you said. Okay, right. Yeah, very cool. All right, that's good because I think that gives people a little bit of a primer if they're like, hmm, how do I get started? <laughs> um, this is, gives you some good ideas and um, do's and don'ts. Um, just so that you will have some success. And I know you've taught a class, I think, over the um, summer, last summer. You filmed a class with Blueprint, um, which people can go check out if they want to get a little bit more of like, um, you know, some video instruction from you. It's like a, a tote bag class, but you get to see, um, you can watch a preview on YouTube, on Blueprint's YouTube channel to see, um, you know, kind of how this all works. So what was that experience like? Uh, that was wonderful. Um uh, you know, I really had to just show up and they put this beautiful set together and they make sure that all the supplies and everything is there that you need. And, um, it was wonderful just to be able to, um, teach and, and, um, and have it so beautifully filmed and, and, uh, well produced. Um, they treated me wonderful and they put together a great little video. So I was very happy to do that. And um, I'd love to talk a little bit about your book, um, Modern Rug Hooking, 22 Punch Needle Projects for Crafting a Beautiful Home, which has um, just come out um, maybe two months ago. And um, before we do that, though, I, I'm wondering with Blueprint and with the book um, and even with Pearl Soho, are all of these different opportunities coming to you through Instagram or are they coming to you in different ways? That's a great question. They're all through Instagram. Um, I'm very fortunate that uh, that's all I uh, need to do right now. And I'm getting a lot of these wonderful opportunities. Um, I have a 13-year-old child and I also have um, a three-year-old and they both just turned 13 and three. And so I, I, uh, I'm doing everything while staying at home with my daughter um, right now. And so 
the idea of like marketing and putting myself out there, I really don't have a lot of spare time to do that. And so I've been fortunate that I, by just maintaining an Instagram has opened up so many options for me. Okay. Um, so let's talk yeah. briefly then about your Instagram strategy before we dive into these <laughs> other things, because um, hearing that, I think a lot of people would say, okay, then how do I do Instagram like you do? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> because, um, and, and obviously you have a degree in photography, which I think that now, right, like I took photography in high school. And when I think back to it, I'm like, dang, I should have really paid more attention because who knew like how, you know, big of a role photography was going to end up playing in our lives as, you know, we all got these phones and yeah. social media became so integral to promoting your business and you know I just I I feel like wow this has really become a big part of what we need to do in a skill set that's actually really vital um and I didn't realize it back then you know so obviously you have this degree um which has really got to be really helpful but talk just a little bit about like what do you do for Instagram like what's your process like like what do you do every day to make this happen yeah uh, well for anyone who's interested in what the beginning of my Instagram looked like when I was really experimenting and um, lots of filter. I mean, it was pretty awful. Like, and you could see all of that in that documentation. Um, so I've really kind of just learned as I went. I didn't even get a semi-professional camera until I got a book deal. And then I was like, okay, I don't think I could do a book on my iPhone I think I need to go out and get a camera. So even though I did have this fine art photography background, I never took a, a studio picture or a product um, photograph before. It was all, it was black and white um, photography I did. So I, although there might be like a sense of, I, I trained my eye in a certain way, or I know how to balance an image, um, my technical skills were, um, and it probably are still kind of lacking, but I have a, um, just a sense in terms of space and light. I think that's very important right. um, because it, the crafts I do, the rugs I make, um, they're very bright and bold and it can overwhelm a feed in terms of making it look too busy. I try to really kind of balance that out by a lot of um, white space or keeping them very clean looking, very minimal um, so my feed is very choreographed in terms of, um, having a lot of blank space and then, um, and then also, uh, filling it with color or like bringing color throughout. And so not to overwhelm with like too much color or too many things. Um, I have this app that, and this is a little embarrassing, but it, grids out the feed. So I know how to balance it. And I know what it's going to look like before I post it. What is, which you, app do you use? Um, I, oh, it's called Square Ready. Square Ready. Okay. Yeah. And it lets you download as many photographs as a time, at a time as you want. So that's a little different than the other apps that are available to do that. But once I started using that app, um, my feed really changed because even though I thought something was going to look good, within the feed, it would just end up being like too cluttered in my opinion. And this really helped me kind of like space things out. Um, sometimes it means I'm posting things that aren't too interesting just because I need a little bit more of that, like white space in there. And again, this is kind of my own, yeah. um, but like, your, yeah. your curation. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. And some of it's very silly, but I think as a whole, when you go back and you look at it, um, it comes across as, as room to breathe. I also do something like I um, have a white border around my photographs. Yes. Um, and, and that helps with the same thing. It just creates a little bit more space. Um, and what, so, what are you editing those in a, a specific app as well? No. Uh, yeah. It's just through my, um, my actual, a camera app oh, on okay. my iPhone. In your phone. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Or even on Instagram itself. Um, something that really helped me was uh, the when I did finally go out and get a camera, it's an automatic camera, so I don't have control um, manually, you know, for the aperture and things like that. However, it's Wi-Fi connected, which means that I can take my own portrait. <laughs> 
um, through my, and it's hooked into my phone. So you can kind of have control that way. You set your camera up on a tripod, Mm -hmm. but you can see what's happening through your phone. Mm. And that's a wonderful tool. Um, because every, every portrait that you've seen of me is, um, You've taken yourself. (laughs) Yes. And it takes a lot of pictures. Even the back of my head takes a lot of pictures to get one that I think comes across. Well, you know, what they say is pixels are free. So take a lot. That's exactly right. Because I know how much film costs. (laughs) I could never never do what I do right now if I was using film. Yeah. No, 100%. Okay. So thank you for sharing a little bit about sort of the carefulness that you are, um, you are using as you go about your Instagram, because clearly it's really important and it's led to some incredible opportunities for you, including this book, um, which was published by, um, Shambhala, um, which Roost is, uh, an imprint. Um, and, um, I'm wondering, I know there's 22 projects in this book, some of which are actually quite representational because they're for children. Um, and I'm wondering whether that was a challenge for you to sort of come up with projects for this book that were um, different in style than, you know, what you've been doing in rug hooking? Yeah, um, I was able to create a book similar to my Tide with String where under the umbrella of rug hooking with a punch needle, of course, I could take it into many many different directions. And so I wanted to show the wide variety of what you could do with the punch needle, which meant doing kids projects or making a crown, but it was also elevating it into like fine art objects and large floor rugs. And so I just really want to illustrate the gamut of what can be made. And, um, it was something I always have my hands in my children's crafts and making things for my, my kids. Um, so that wasn't so different. Although if I do like one little dog purse, I don't want to do that again and again. Like one is enough <laughs> than where my big floor rugs or where I really get to design something like an abstract painting. Then I, I that's something I always want to come back to. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so um, talk a little bit about the process of um, – I guess, getting this book deal, did you get like an Instagram DM from, you know, an editor or was it an agent or what happened? That, that's exactly right. It all came through Instagram, probably in the DM. Um, I was lucky enough. Again, I was had my hands in rug hooking when this became very popular. And so I had a few offers at the same time. And uh, Roost was definitely... Um, they're a wonderful publisher they and they really have are look. and yes. um and they've been on the podcast as well so if you want to hear a little bit more about them go back and listen and they good good choice but yes yeah and they gave me complete control and freedom and whatever anything I want to do for my very strange kind of like strip plastic bags um line drawing to uh you know, I can't, I'm trying to think outside the box. I did an applique and punch piece or repurposing fibers. They never said I couldn't do anything. And they gave me complete control in terms of um, the photography I did myself and all those things. So I can't say enough great things about them. Um, But this, all these opportunities, they did come from Instagram. Um, And so did you, did you kind of um, navigate that those opportunities on your own, or did you hire an agent to help you figure out, you know, having not written a traditionally published book before, some people are like, oh gosh, I don't really know, you know, among these publishers and what they're saying, which one of these is, is right for me and whether the deal they're offering me is the right deal, et cetera, and how to, you know, evaluate these contracts. And you had had a copyright trademark patent thing happen in the past and maybe you were you know shy about that or or were you like no I can do this now I'm I'm stronger for it and I know what I'm doing <laughs> excellent question yeah um I I didn't have a, an agent or anything like that so I went about this um this agreement I, I definitely more I was more cautious and I I read over um the contract very well um and I think I also got very lucky with Roost. Uh, I don't think it would have been the same experience if I went with the other, a different publisher. I think in most cases, an agent is, is 
an invaluable, um, uh, you know, partner. Asset. But yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right. Um, but I think I being with Roost and having such a, a wonderful team there, um, and they really kind of supported me. And when I needed help, they would help me. Um, and I got lucky. I'm obviously not learning from my mistakes, but um, I got lucky that way. Yeah. Okay. And what are some of the things that you learned? You know, one of the things having written books myself, I feel like were great, were, was great about that process was just having this partner who taught me a lot about my own work, you know, about how to market my own work and how to refine my own work and how to um, bring it together, tie it all together and just certain things about it that I didn't see before. So I'm wondering if there were things that you learned in the process. I mean, you mentioned before that your blur book now feels like a dean, <laughs> but what are some of the things that you learned through the process of writing this book? Oh, I, I learned so much. I mean, the learning curve was huge. Just the way you go about making a project. Um, I was very gung ho about like coming up with all these ideas and getting them out there and making them. And then I saved all the writing until the last month, which was Oops. not the way. Yeah. <laughs> Not the way you go about things to just the way they um, the the graphics, the way they put it together, the way it, it's like my Instagram feed and they like gave it each project had its space and the white. It was just so beautiful the way they they make it work with the images and the text and the layout. Um, that's something I'm not strong on. And so it was wonderful to see someone else do that. Yeah. Um, for your stuff. What, for my stuff, exactly. Yeah. 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 And it, it really makes me realize that, um, like, I am fine within the grid of Instagram, but even within something like a website or if I wanted to do more in-depth tutorials, like, I really need someone to yeah. to kind of hold my hand and do that. that. That is something I'm very limited in. And um, so I'm so grateful to have such a great publisher, but also I could really use a partnership in many ways. You see like, oh gosh, when I I could hire a team and make this amazing. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating to see somebody else work with your work um, and see its potential in a way that you maybe didn't see. I think it's it's really instructive. Um, I highly recommend it. (laughs) So um, very cool. And you had a book release party at Eileen Fisher. How cool is that? Oh, yeah. Um, It was incredibly cool. I I love their their sustainable um, mission and what they do, their designs. You know, I've been a fan of their clothing for so long. So that was really a dream. That space is just amazing. And they really incorporate artists into their line into, and they reuse the fabrics um, and the, the waste that uh, their, their company creates. They use that into other um I don't know, clothing, but also they give it to artists. And so it was a great partnership to do that. I had done a residency there where I was using all the recycled textiles to make rugs and stripped it down. Um, and of course, their colors are gorgeous. And so it was like my palette. And I just got to create rugs with old Eileen Fisher textiles. My mother was horrified because I, I got a big box in the mail and to to deconstruct these beautiful garments she had to just like walk away yeah she's uh, like how dare you <laughs> yes it just it was, it was sacrilege definitely. yeah yeah my mom would feel the same way yeah totally. yeah she's like head to toe Eileen Fisher so um uh so if people want to study with you or you know learn from you they can come to the makery um, correct in Boulder this coming very good May, yeah. which is super cool. We've actually had Allie from the Makery on the show. We've referenced like eight previous um, <laughs> podcasts, by the way. Um, but um, that's fantastic opportunity. So um, people should totally go check that out if they want to try their hand at um, Punch Needle and spend some time with you. So that's super exciting. Um, and so I want to um, make sure we get to your recommendations before we run out of time. So you wanted to recommend a few really cool things. One is Milk Magazine, which I have not checked out. Yeah, this magazine is so beautiful. And I'm, I'm a big fan of magazines. Me um, too. Yeah. So this one, it's a French magazine, and now it's translated into English. So you can oh. read it and not just look at the pictures. It started off as just, uh, it was more of a 
family for families and kids, but beautifully done with art and design. Um, and that was the original. It was called Milk Magazine. And now they have an offshoot called Milk Decoration, which is more about um, interiors. But but it was it's definitely with a cr- art and craft twist. It's the handmade. So even though it's a beautiful aspirational magazine, it feels like uh, – all handmade objects it's not just about throwing money and buying the most Mm -hmm. expensive thing it's it's really it celebrates art and it celebrates craft in a way that i've never seen beautifully photographed beautiful homes um but i just get so much inspiration from this magazine wonderful Uh, yeah they're they're kind of a specialty thing i think they're like maybe 12 or 15 dollars a magazine so they're not inexpensive but you can can go back and flip through those pages like for years yeah oh yeah i mean i'm never gonna throw one yeah yeah, yeah. they're beautiful wonderful Um, okay um you wanted to recommend making things by ann sire why or sire wiseman yeah i think i don't know if it's a i think it's sire wiseman yes this this is like an old school 70s book where um it's an illustrated uh I would almost say it's a children's book. It's a, it says a handbook of creative discovery, but it's very much, um, it's similar to my tied with string. Um, in terms of it's all over the board with, then you can make books and then you can weave this and you can make your own clothes and you can, um, do a clay object. Um, I found this book after my tied with string and I was like, this is the book I've been looking for because it doesn't just deal with one type of material or one technique. And it just, it's like a quick introduction to all these different types of things you can do with simple supplies. And a lot of it, um, you know, it's not prescribed templates or anything like that. So it's very open ended. And it's, I mean, there's I, I would say there's at least a hundred different types of projects. It says, yeah, 125 from, projects. So, yeah. Yeah. Everything from macrame knots to like cording to everything I do is in this book. And it's geared towards children, but you can really adapt it to adult projects. I had it, a it, book like this when I was a kid in my room and I made so many things. I seriously... It's not this exact book, but I attribute having this particular craft book that I can, I, I believe I have it upstairs somewhere. The cover has been ripped off, but I attribute it to like turning me into a crafter because I would flip through those pages and I did every single craft in this book. And it That's like, exa- I like absorbed it like into my blood as a kid. And it, I, I like loved it. It was all things you could make with found materials, like styrofoam meat trays and like all these yeah. random things from your house. Exactly. And even though I didn't really discover her, um, this author and this book when I was younger, but my mother had these books around and I feel like it was popular in the seventies. It was like, yeah. And they're, they're very simplified versions of all different kinds of crafts. And that's the kind of, I'm a, I'm attracted to something that's not too complicated and that I can kind of get the gist from looking at a diagram or from looking at an illustration. Um, and then just like picking up common materials and doing it myself. And it's how I taught my classes, um, my children's classes in public school. It's how I, you know, do projects with my kids and it's really how I love to create. And so it's, I've, this book is just incredible and it's just such a resource. Um, I don't think she's, she's no longer living. So, um, but I think you it can came definitely out get it used on oh, Amazon. Yes. I'm looking at it right now. So, yeah. And um, I actually have yeah. the best of making things. Oh, which nice. Is like, yeah. <laughs> it's a great compilation. <laughs> Very good. Um, and then you wanted to talk about Eileen Fisher Renew, which we've already touched on a little bit. Yeah. But, um, the Renew program is fantastic because you can bring in, if you have an Eileen Fisher garment, you can bring it in and they give you, I think $5 for every garment, but it also means that these recycled garments can be turned into, um, new clothing. And sometimes when they're lightly used, they can be resold. And so you can go on their Renew, um, Eileen Fisher Renew on their website and you can buy beautiful Eileen Fisher clothing for a fraction of the price. Um, and they're, they're all gently worn, but I just think that that circular fashion and the idea of like, you know, there's so much waste in, um, the garment district and the garment 
feel. So um, they're just yeah. really trying to find new ways to um, reduce their waste um, and and make more carefully thought of, thoughtful, beautiful clothing. Um, even their their cottons, you know, going back to the farmers, they're all really sustainable. They don't use a lot of elastic in it, so they can repurpose into to new items of clothing. Um, it's just very thoughtful uh, company, and and you can also buy beautiful clothes for for uh, less less than the the normal price, I should say. Yeah, and they're made to last in the first place, so they're you made can to resell last. them. Yeah, and you know she's really leading the way. Um, I've listened to some interviews with her, and she, I I just really admire that. I feel like when you are in that position of power, like you have a really successful company, then you're, you're able to, to take that leadership role. And I admire people who do that. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So that's great. Well, Rose, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the craft industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Such a pleasure, Abby. Thank you. And you've been listening to the craft industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Doris, a premier distributor and manufacturer of wholesale arts and craft supplies with over 45,000 items across hundreds of product categories. Doris is offering an exclusive promotion for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Visit Doris.com and use the promo code CIA15 at checkout for 15% off your order. This offer is valid through February 29th, 2020. So check it out at Doris.com. Thank you so much, Doris. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you grow your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.